JBC Radio 4, the news at 10 o'clock. After many years of speculation, myth and fiction, it has this morning been confirmed that aliens do in fact exist. A large ship touched down on Salisbury Plain at 05.45 GMT, having been tracked by the University of Manchester's Jodrell Bank facility. Let's go now to the scientists who made this historic discovery. The Jodcast never wants to give out inaccurate information. With Nick Rattenbury, Stuart Lowe, Ian Morrison, Tim O'Brien, Megan Argo and David Alt. The Jodcast. April issue. Hello and welcome to the April edition of The Jodcast. I'm down here in London and joining me from Manchester are Stuart and Nick. Hello. Hello. Right, so, on the Jodcast this month, we have Graham Wood talking about gravitational waves, Steve Rawlings talking about quasars, and Stuart's podcast roundup at the end of the show. And of course, your favourites, Ask an Astronomer and the Night Sky. Uh, but first, before all of that, here's the news with Megan Argo. In the news this month, Liverpool Telescope throws light on gamma ray bursts, astronomers use computers to blow up a white dwarf, latest results from Akari, and strange cloud formations seen on Saturn. Astronomers using the robotic Liverpool telescope have measured the polarisation of the optical light from a gamma-ray burst just 203 seconds after the start of the explosion. The group, led by Dr Carol Mundell at Liverpool John Moores University, used a new instrument known as Ringo on the 2-metre telescope located on La Palma to examine the light from an event known as GRB 060418. This distant but highly energetic explosion was initially spotted by a gamma-ray detector on board the SWIFT satellite, triggering several telescopes to quickly move to the same part of the sky to catch the fading light known as the afterglow. Robotic telescopes such as the Liverpool telescope are ideal for observations like this, where a message from a satellite can trigger telescopes on the ground to make observations straight away without having to wait for a human to adjust the telescope schedule. These GRB events are thought to be the result of catastrophic explosions of massive stars, where new black holes or neutron stars are formed. The nature of the material thrown out in these explosions is still something of a mystery, as is the importance of magnetic fields in these outflows. One way that magnetic fields can be probed is by looking for polarisation in the light from the event using instruments such as Ringo. This new measurement of the polarisation of the light from an afterglow was made almost 100 times faster than previous measurements and shows a very low level of polarisation. These results rule out strong magnetic fields in the material flowing out in the early stages of the explosion and will help narrow down the wide range of models which attempt to explain the process that occurs in GRB explosions. After many years of failed attempts, scientists at the University of Chicago have managed to blow up a star, but not a real one. Using supercomputers, the group have managed to simulate the detonation of a white dwarf star, which is thought to be the cause of certain kinds of supernovae. The simulations, which used more than 58,000 hours of computer time, show that the process resembles what happens inside a diesel engine, although in a star the process is supersonic and far more violent. Up to now, the usual way to trigger the explosion of a white dwarf in a simulation was to insert an explosion by hand into the computer code, this is the first time that scientists have made a star explode realistically. In the detonation, a flame bubble about 10 miles in diameter forms at the centre of the star. This bubble travels 1,200 miles to the star's surface in about one second, where it speeds around the surface of the star and crashes into itself. This collision causes a compression region where the catastrophic detonation occurs. Accurately modelling this sort of supernova can help with other areas of astrophysics. Measurements of the brightness of supernova explosions has led to the conclusion that the expansion of the universe is speeding up, so understanding these events in more detail will help our understanding of dark energy and the universe on large scales. The Japanese satellite Akari has released several new results during March. Launched in February 2006, the Infrared Observatory has been working continuously carrying out observations of many interesting objects. Results from recent observations were presented at a meeting of the National Astronomical Society of Japan at the end of March.
Among the new results are detailed observations of regions of star formation within the Milky Way. The detection of supernova remnant in the small Magellanic Cloud, never been seen before in the infrared part of the spectrum. Previously unseen detail in the thick gas clouds around the supermassive black hole at the centre of an ultraluminous galaxy. And studies of star-forming galaxies in the distant universe, which help trace the history of galaxy formation. The satellite is carrying out an infrared survey of the entire sky, and has covered about 80% of the sky so far. The latest images from Cassini have shown a strange feature first spotted over Saturn's North Pole by the Voyager 1 and 2 spacecraft more than 25 years ago. Cassini's latest images show a hexagonal cloud feature nearly 25,000 kilometres in diameter, circling the entire pole of the planet. It is so large that almost four Earths could fit inside it. The formation is similar to the Earth's own polar vortex, formed by circular patterns of winds blowing around the pole, although the Earth's is somewhat smaller and circular in shape. The new data from Cassini's infrared cameras shows that the hexagonal feature extends far down into Saturn's atmosphere, reaching a depth of over 100 kilometres. This is in contrast to the south pole of the planet, where images show a hurricane with a giant eye instead of a polar vortex. This feature is clearly long-lived as it has been seen in observations taken more than 25 years apart, but it is still not clear why it should be so stable. More observations are being taken of this feature, and optical images will be made in a couple of years when the north pole of the planet emerges into sunlight after its 15-year-long winter night. And finally, new observations made by the Spitzer Space Telescope suggest that binary star systems might be just as likely to form planets as single stars like our own Sun. Using the multiband imaging photometer on the infrared telescope, a team of astronomers led by Dave Trelling of the University of Arizona have observed almost 70 binary stars looking for excess infrared emission characteristic of protoplanetary dust disks. These disks are made up of dust grains, which, over time, collide and accumulate into small bodies known as planetesimals, which continue to grow and eventually become planets. The light from the star, or stars, around which the planetesimals orbit, is absorbed by the dust grains and re-emitted in the infrared part of the electromagnetic spectrum, where Spitzer's cameras are sensitive. By looking for star systems with unusually high infrared fluxes, the astronomers have found that planets are just as likely to form around binaries as they are around single stars. Thanks, Megan. Now, once again, Nick has been on the trail of some fairly interesting astrophysical phenomena. Yes, indeed. I've been talking to Dr. Graham Wohn from the University of Glasgow about gravitational waves. This is the way two black holes collide. Not with a bang, but a... Now, I haven't just deleted an expletive in an interesting way. That is actually the audio representation of the gravitational waves emitted when two black holes collide into each other. To find out more, I interviewed Dr. Graham Wohn from the University of Glasgow. Okay, so I'm a radio astronomer originally. I worked on radio astronomy at quite low frequencies. And about six years ago, the uh, work in Glasgow, which is where I'm from, on gravitational wave detection reached a point where real astronomy may be able to be performed with the instrumentation. And so uh, there was a requirement to get some astronomers interested in gravitational wave research just purely to get somebody to have a look at the data, analyse it, uh, look for potential sources. And so um, we work within a, a collaboration called the LIGO Scientific Collaboration, the LSC. And uh, this is, uh, is becoming a worldwide um, arrangement of several hundred scientists. I think the last of the papers had something like 350 authors on it. Right. <laughs> and, uh, so it's a fair size. And um, this is a collaboration which essentially brings together the observations from... Uh, the three large uh, LIGO gravitational wave detectors in America and R1 in Hanover and just becoming now uh, the detector in Italy. So LIGO is um, the Laser Interferometric Gravitational Observatory and so the aim is to get a kind of worldwide network of gravitational wave detectors. So you are the, uh, an organising consortium basically? That's right, yes. It's, uh, I mean right now the, the majority of the high precision observations are from the detectors in America, the, uh, the detectors of LIGO, which are um, in 
Hanford in the northwest, and there's one in uh, Louisiana mm-hmm. in the southeast of America. And those detectors have now been running at design sensitivity for um, over a year. Right. And, and uh, so they're bringing in the data and we're just analysing it. Um, our detector in Hanover is smaller, and as a result it's not quite so sensitive. Uh, but the what it brings to the issue is that it has um, optics and techniques applied uh, within it which are the techniques which will be used in the next generation of gravitational wave detectors. It's a test bed, basically, for the next... Well, it's a test bed. It's an observing test bed, so it's sort of a hybrid of the two. Um, In a few years' time, we'll have a... a, um, um, a program of, of other detectors, which are advanced detectors. They, mm-hmm. They're a hybrid of the technology in our detectors in Hanover and the infrastructure of the detectors in America. And, mm-hmm. and so that's what everyone now is working towards, is the construction of these um, advanced detectors. Let's talk about what you're actually trying to observe in the right. first place, these gravitational waves. Now, tell us about what, what are gravitational are. waves. Yes. Well, they, they are, as they say, they are waves of gravity. So what does that mean? Well, it means that... If a gravitational wave was to pass over us right now in this room, then the separation between us would slightly change in, in, a, in, a, in an oscillating way. So we'd get slightly closer together and slightly further apart. Um, if, if, uh, if we were sort of hanging in free fall, obviously we're in chairs, which holds mm-hmm. us in position at the moment. But if we were in free fall, we would actually get slightly closer, slightly further apart. So does that mean that gravity itself is getting stronger or is something else happening? Well... The strange thing is, if, if you were to actually be in freefall in space and the wave went through, you wouldn't actually yourself be able to tell because it wouldn't feel as if you were being accelerated. It's not like your hat would fly off or anything as you were, right. as you were slid from side to side. What actually happens is just the separation between things changes. And so it's the space-time between things which is becoming stretched and squeezed. And, right. and, and that can be detected. It's a, it's a, it's a very small effect. It's mm. a... Um, uh, the strain, the fractional change in separations are one part in 10 to the 22, 23, 24 or so. And so these are very, very small uh, changes in separation. So you're saying the universe itself is actually stretching and contracting as this wave goes past? Exactly that. It's very much like the analogy which is always used is of uh, a rubber sheet. So imagine you had um, something like a trampoline, that uh, large, large trampoline, but made out of quite floppy rubber. So mm-hmm. it's not a trampoline you'd actually want to jump on. And you threw a stone onto the trampoline, then you'd get these ripples of, uh, of elastic waves which would flow out from the place where the stone hit. Well, that's very much like the stretching and the squeezing of, the sp- of, of space, which occurs as a gravitational wave flows through it. And so the question is, what's the analogy of throwing a stone onto this trampoline? Well, the, an- the analogy is almost anything which throws around a large amount of extra mass. So if you have, say, a pair of neutron stars or any stars orbiting each other, then the act of that orbit actually produces gravitational waves um, and the waves flow out at it actually twice the orbital frequency of the orbit itself. How do we know that? How do we know that these gravitational waves exist? We know, as far as we know, that we haven't detected any yet, but... That's right. In fact... Um, despite the fact that we have these great detectors which, in principle, can detect gravitational waves, as yet they haven't seen a single wave. Uh, So what makes us believe this isn't a complete waste of time and effort? Well, the primary reason, probably the primary reason, is that we have indirect evidence of the existence of gravitational waves from the way in which they slow down the orbits of neutron stars. So we can see pairs of neutron stars um, orbiting each other. And and uh, if one of these neutron stars is a pulsar, then we can time it very accurately. Mm. And we can see the orbit evolve in time. And what we see is that the orbits slowly shrink, very slowly, just by um, a, a fraction of an inch every orbit. But they slowly inspire. Um, they're they're spiring towards each other. Towards each other. And what that means is that the orbital system is um, throwing out um, energy and angular momentum. That's the only way in which you can explain this. And if you work out how much energy and angular momentum is being radiated from this system, it's exactly the amount predicted um, in, in Einstein's theory of general relativity. It's a very precise match to the predicted uh, loss of energy and angular momentum through gravitational radiation. 
Um, and so that's the, that's the real reason why most people, I think everybody now actually, believes that gravitational waves exist, despite the fact we haven't ever detected them as a wave yet. Why is it that gravitational systems like these binary star systems couple to space-time itself and radiate gravity? Anything will radiate gravitational waves if you, if you accelerate it. So if you stand up, you accelerate and you will radiate a very small amount of gravitational hmm. radiation. That's not very much. The analogy is very close with um, electromagnetic waves. So you're probably aware that if you have a charge, an electrical charge, and you accelerate that, perhaps in an, in an antenna, or perhaps um, if you have a, an, an electron, perhaps in a, in, in a wire, and you um, heat the wire up so that the electron is is accelerating very very rapidly, then this will produce um, electromagnetic waves, either radio waves for the antenna or light waves if it's a hot wire. Gravitational radiation is exactly the same and, in fact, produces quite prestigious amounts of gravitational radiation if you accelerate the mass sufficiently. But these waves are quite hard to detect because the majority of the power in the wave isn't in the strain. Remember earlier we were talking about the way in which it stretches and squeezes the space. Mm-hmm. You can think of space-time as, as a rubber sheet, but it's very... Sp- very strong rubber. Right. It's a bit like the rubber of a rubber tyre. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you can imagine hitting a rubber tyre, a fair amount of energy from your hand ends up in a rubber tyre, but the displacement of the rubber is actually rather small. Right. And there is a wave. You can imagine there's a wave mm-hmm. travelling out along the, along the rim of the tyre, but you can't actually see the, the displacement. Um, and that's pretty much how it is with gravitational waves. The, the amount of power in the waves can be quite significant, but the amount of strain, the amount of uh, stretching and squeezing of, of, of time and space, which this corresponds to, is actually rather small. Right. Um, so our current detectors are having to look for waves which have, um, well, how, how shall I describe it? The fractional change in separation is the same as changing the distance from us to the nearest star, Alpha Centauri, by about a hundredth the width of a human hair. And you want to detect this? And we can detect that. You can detect We this. can already detect that. How um, on earth are you going to detect such well, a small change? Well, this is where these machines just become mind-blowingly amazing. So let's um, imagine, uh, say, the uh, LIGO detectors in Hanford. So what these look like are, are L shapes on the ground, um, a pair of arms at right angles. And we shine a laser beam up each of these arms, reflected off the end, and some other optics between, actually. And then we time how long, essentially, the laser beam takes to return. And if one arm is slightly stretched or squeezed with respect to the other arm, then there's a slight change in the light travel time. And this appears as a shift in the position of an interference fringe um, um, in this interferometer. It's 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 an interferometric system. And the amount of displacement of an arm, which we can see, is something like 10 to the minus 18 of a metre in a second. Right. Um, so just to put that into perspective, as, um, the width of an atom is about 10 to the minus 10 of a metre, and the width of a proton is about 10 to the minus 15 of a metre. So we're talking about a thousandth the width of a proton. Wow. Um, and this is a machine which can detect a displacement change of that in a second. And, of course... Because these arms are long, that means their strain sensitivity is about a thousand times higher than that. Mm. And so um, uh, they can detect strains of 10 to the minus 21, 22, 23, uh, depending on the, um, on the frequency. Um, so, so they are phenomenal machines. And how do we know that we can detect these things? Well, you can actually inject a little signal. So you can electrostatically or electromagnetically slightly change the position of one of the um, optical components in the system. So right. imagine the one you're reflecting off the end of one of the arms. So you can adjust that position by something like 10 to the minus 18 of a meter, which you can do amazingly. That's um, spectacular. And so uh, you're, you're, you're simulating the effect of a passing gravitational wave by doing this. Exactly. To test and the equipment. That's right. And then you can um, extract that from the data which you observe. And we've tried that. We've, we've in, essentially injected the signals, waveforms, which are like the ones which we expect from real astrophysical sources. And we've check that we can recover them from from the data with mm-hmm. the sensitivity which we expect, uh, and we can. Uh, so we're pretty confident that the detectors are operating as uh, hoped. All we need now is for there to be uh, a strong source of gravitational waves in our immediate vicinity. Right. A layman's view of how you're doing this, you're trying to measure these tiny, tiny 
changes in difference between these two mirrors in your interferometer and one arm of interferometer. Mm-hmm. But you're saying that the, the effect of a passing gravitational wave is to stretch and then contract local space ever so slightly. But in layman's terms, you're trying to measure this distance with some kind of ruler. Doesn't mm. that mean your ruler is stretching and contracting as well? Um, you've got to be careful with this, as you say. Um, so how it works is that the, um, we shine, actually we shine up these arms, we shine a light. And it's the proper time that light takes to travel the distance between the um, uh, ends, which is the entity which we detect. And so um, imagine you you looked at one of the crests of the light and you saw how long it took to get from the sort of hub of the L out to the end of the arm and return. That's what we're detecting. So it really is is the light travel time. Right. But you can get confused because you're, you're quite right. You may think that the wavelength of the light stretches as well as, as the wave heads through. Well, that's essentially uh, describing the same effect from another frame, so you've got to be careful you're not sort of unwinding the, uh, the um, effect which you've described in another way uh, earlier. The other way to, to imagine it, and I think actually this is slightly easier, is to think about it in more uh, cosmological terms. So we think about the expanding universe, and everyone's heard of the expanding universe now, and they, uh, that's detected by the redshift of spectral lines from um, objects a long way away. And uh, that redshift is, is because the separation between us and them is increasing. It's, mm-hmm. uh, it's the expansion of the universe. Well, on a much smaller scale, it's exactly what is happening in these interferometers. It's the separation between the beginning and the end of the arm, which is increasing. The only change for us is that it then gets smaller again. It oscillates in and out. Right. Um, but it's a bit like a red shift and a blue shift from the end of the arm. Right. Uh, so that's another way of imagining it, which perhaps is a little bit easier. <laughs> Speaking of oscillations, what's the frequency of a gravitational wave? Well, um, pretty much anything you like. The real question you, you want to ask is, what's the frequency of strong gravitational waves? Um, and the detectors we have at the moment um, work around about the audio range, oddly. They, they're about between about 25 to 50 hertz up to a few kilohertz. Right. So if one uh, actually plugged the output of the detectors into a pair of headphones, which we do, in fact, yes. because it's an extremely instructive exercise, then what you hear is hiss. <laughs> and that hiss is the hiss from the detector. Uh, but if a wave went through the detector, you'd actually hear the wave itself. And so we have some recordings which show, and perhaps we could put some of these on your website, which, which are examples of what these uh, uh, rather cataclysmic and spectacular events in the universe actually would sound like in the gravitational wave detectors. And rather amusingly, they do not sound very cataclysmic and amazing. They, <laughs> they are chirps, um, is, the, is the strongest sort of a signal we'd expect to detect. And a chirp is just a tone of increasing pitch. Right. Um, and what this represents is the in-spiral of a pair of neutron stars or a pair of black holes towards each other. Remember earlier we talked about the um, slow decay of the orbit of a pair of neutron stars as they orbit and as they throw out gravitational waves. Well, this procedure, this throwing out of gravitational radiation and the decay of the orbit will happen for many tens of, of millions of years. And um, eventually, of course, these neutron stars will get very close together. Mm-hmm. And and in fact, as they get closer together, they throw out gravitational waves with much greater power. And so this evolutionary uh, shrinking of the orbit gets much, much faster. And in fact, the last few thousand orbits happen in a few seconds. Right. Um, and, and the waves which are produced, therefore, uh, sound like a sinusoidal pure wave uh, mm-hmm. of increasing pitch and actually also of increasing strength as well. Right. So um, the frequency goes up... And the amplitude goes up. Indeed. And, of course, this begins at a very low frequency. I mean, it begins at pretty much the orbital frequency of the system. So that might be um, um, 100 days at the beginning. Uh, But by the time it reached the end, it's it's a hundredth of a second. Right. Um, And the signal will sweep through the detector detector band, because, of course, our detectors only work between about 50 hertz and a few kilohertz. Mm. So we just see the end of this, this enormously long chart, which has been happening for... Um, hundreds of millions of years. <laughs> okay, so if you had a, a pair of neutron stars orbiting each other, um, relatively close together, end of their orbital evolution, then uh, they'll produce gravitational waves in the audio band, and so they would sound something like this. 
Okay, and here's a, a, a waveform where the uh, neutron stars, which are inspiring towards each other, each have intrinsic spin, and this affects the orbital evolution. So that makes the waveform sound a bit like this. So these are simulated um, the audio representations. They are not the real thing, unfortunately. Not the real thing, yes. So we're waiting for a, a strong gravitational event near to us before we're going to detect these gravitational waves. When do we, when do we expect this to happen? Are, Are we, we hoping in vain? Um, well, it could be now. It, it could be tomorrow. Um, the question is, what's the probability? And this has been looked at rather carefully, of course, because we don't want to be uh, wasting our efforts here. We, we have to have some indication that there's a reasonable chance of detecting um, a, a real um, in spiral of this sort in the, in the next few years. Um, and all the indications are right now from observations of neutron stars um, um, in the galaxy is that the rate at which these events happen um, is such that with our sensitivity, we wouldn't expect to see more than about one every three years right, right. now. So it's not a high rate right now. Mm -hmm. um, this last 12, we've been observing now for about 12 months at design sensitivity. The chances of us therefore observing anything within that period are slim, but not zero. Right. Um, and if that was all we were hoping to do, then I think we couldn't justify the effort. Uh, but it's not all we're intending to do. Um, these detectors are the precursor of the real detectors, if you like, which will come online in a few years time, which are the advanced detectors. Um, and these advanced detectors will have 10 or 15 times the sensitivity of the detectors we have at the moment. And where are they going to be? Well, they'll be in the same place. They'll okay. be um, in the same um, uh, mechanical um, um, arm, arm tubes, uh, mm -hmm. which we have now, but all the optics will change and, and, and some of the control electronics will change. It'll, it's an upgrade, essentially. Right. Uh, and but is, it's not, it, is it just the optics that's being upgraded, or it, it's, are you making it um, bigger? Um, higher power in the laser as well. Right. Um, uh, but the arm lengths are the same. That's not going to change because that was a large, in, uh, large investment of, uh, of effort to have those arms uh, uh, constructed. Um, now, a factor of 10 or 15 in sensitivity doesn't sound too much. You think, well, perhaps that will only increase the rates by a factor of 10 or 15. Mm. In fact, that's not how it works. Um, the reach, how far away from us we can detect one of these in spirals, um, increases as the sensitivity. So if we increase our sensitivity by a factor of 10, we increase our, re our reach also by a factor of 10. When you talk about reach, you're talking about actual distance um, away from us. Exactly that. And so the volume of space, which we can see, increases by a factor of 1,000. Right, yes. How far away can we see these things? We're seeing them out to, right now, about 15 megaparsecs, which is in light years, something like 50 m million light years. That's a long way, and yeah. it includes a large number of stars, obviously, uh, uh, extragalactic stars. Uh, the event rates, how often we expect to see one of these in spirals for um, an advanced detector, is perhaps three a day. Hmm. Perhaps three a day. Three a day? Three a day. So something between three a day and three a year. So you expect, for instance, these in spiraling neutron stars colliding with each other. Mm -hmm. You expect to hear three of these chirps, these audio representations per day. We would, well, that's our upper limit of, of how often we could expect to hear mm -hmm. them. Uh, we'd ex I, I think in practical terms, you'd expect to hear them every few weeks or right. every few months. Right, right. But all the evidence we have at the moment is that they could turn out to be as often as three a day. Okay. Um, so that will be much more spectacular, and that's when the real astronomy begins. Um, what are we going to learn? What are we going to learn from observing these gravitational waves when we do it? Because it sounds like it's going to happen. It's just a matter of when. The equipment's all ready to go. You're running the, the test experiments now, precursors to the main event. Mm -hmm. What are we going to learn? What are we going to learn? Well, in the short term, we're going to learn that Einstein was right. Now, perhaps we already <laughs> believe Einstein was right, but it's great to know uh, that, he, that he really was. So I think there's, there will be enormous uh, celebrations and... Uh, and the excitement when these gravitational waves are first detected. Mm. Um, uh, but after that, of course, that's when the, the real science begins. And um, there's a wide range of astrophysical sources which can um, produce gravitational waves. But if we just uh, highlight the one we've been talking about, which are these inspiraling neutron stars, one important thing um, about the way in which the radiation is produced is that these objects 
can act as uh, what, are, what are known as uh, standard sirens. Now, what's a standard siren? You, you're, you're about to ask. <laughs> a standard siren is an object which um, has a known brightness. Right. So, in other words, if you if you see how bright it looks, you can work out how far away it is. Mm. Um, why is it called a siren? Well, it's because of this chirp thing. It's because yes. it's, it's an increasing uh, frequency to the uh, signal. Um, so, these standard sirens are objects of known luminosity. We know how much power they produce. Mm. And we can work that out simply from the rate of change in frequency and from um, other aspects of the, uh, of the waveform which is produced. So if we, know the, if we know the luminosity, then we can work out how far away they are. And, of course, in uh, cosmology, this is rather important because um, anything like that helps you to determine the relationship between how far away things are in redshift. Mm. And that's stuff which tells you about the shape of the universe. And so you can answer questions about... Um, dark matter and dark energy and um, all of the current issues in observational cosmology. And so that's for the, that's for the future. Um, um, and that will produce observations which are very important just purely in terms of observational and cosmology. But of course they also reveal uh, the structure of time and space around these objects which are inspiring. So you can have a look at small variations in these waveforms which depart from what we expect. Um, if you had a, a really pure, a pure system, perhaps comprising a pair of black holes um, orbiting each other and inspiring, because black holes ought to behave in much the same way as the neutron stars we talked about earlier, um, then one can Im- imagine a really clean um, arrangement there where you just have a pair of isolated black holes inspiring. And those will probably produce a waveform which is very close to the one which we expect. Right. If you have a pair of neutron stars, though, that have perhaps uh, they'll have strong magnetic fields, obviously, mm-hmm. um, uh, most certainly, they'll also perhaps have material around them which is accreted. And so as they approach each other, things will get very complicated. Right. And, and so from the evolution of the waveform from those, we should be able to tell a large amount about the environment around neutron stars and also the structure, what, what's the uh, inner structure of, of a neutron star. And these are all questions which are very hard to answer in any other way. Hmm. Very exciting stuff. So hopefully in a few years' time there will be a CD from the LIGO Consortium, The Sounds of Our Universe. (laughs) I look forward to that too. Thank you very much indeed for taking the time to talk to us. Thanks very much, it's a pleasure. The use of all the audio representations of gravitational waves used in this interview are by kind permission of Scott Hughes and Ryan Lang of MIT. Thanks, Nick. Now, last month we started off our Jodcast survey, and we've had quite a few responses, some more tongue-in-cheek than others. But yeah, I think, Dave, we've also had a few of the Jodcast presenters actually fill in the survey. Uh, um, uh, yes, yeah, squirm all you like. We know it was you. <laughs> it wasn't. Well, it, it was because... the fact that you said Dave Vault is brilliant. I think that gave it away. <laughs> Unless there's a real person out there who really does think that you're brilliant. It could well, be. I'd Maybe hope so. Is. I'm sure there's plenty of people out there who think Dave is brilliant. Anyway, yes, the survey. Please, please, please go to the Jodcast webpage, www.jodcast.net, and fill out the survey. We really need to know how we're doing, how we can we be better, and what you like. So that we can deliver more of what you want. Exactly. We aim to please, as often as possible. (laughs) Within reason. On a monthly basis. (laughs) (laughs) And within our budget. But if we want a bigger budget, you need to tell us how we can improve, and that we're doing the right thing. Yes, please fill out our survey to make sure that people don't ask for more intros, more outros, and more Dave. (laughs) (laughs) Not that I have a problem with that, of course. (laughs) Okay, now, one of the comments that we got on our survey was that some people can't get enough of us. I don't know quite quite why, but some people can't get enough of us. Oh, I know why they can't get enough of us. (laughs) (laughs) And that we had a suggestion, or a couple of suggestions actually, that we have more editions of the Jodcast. Now, at the moment we can just about cope with one a month. However, for the month of April, we are going to do something special. In the middle of April, we're going to the National Astronomy Meeting in Preston. And we'll be talking to any astronomer we can get our hands on, really, and who doesn't run away screaming. That's, that's basically the philosophy for the Jodcast anyway. Yeah, so we'll have a special mid-month edition, or maybe even a couple of mid-month editions of the Jodcast from NAM, 
as the meeting progresses. That's right. So Stuart and I will be mingling, rubbing shoulders with and talking to the best and the greatest astronomers who are at the National Astronomy Meeting in Preston. And this will be part of our second, our mid-month April Jodcast edition. So stay tuned for that. Watch out for it. Uh, there'll be plenty of uh, notice given on the Jodcast webpage, I should think, Stuart. So yep. And we'll put it on the main Jodcast feed so that everyone gets a chance to listen to it. And it should be great because this is the, the major uh, National Astronomy Meeting, hence the name. Yep. <laughs> so all the top people will be there and we'll be talking to them. So we will make sure that they... Uh, speak coherently and cleverly and uh, fascinatingly about their research. We should make a change from the Judcast uh, presenters. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Now, now. (laughs) Yes, join the Judcast at now. Now, somewhere where the Judcast probably won't be going, uh, to some quasars. You may ask, what's a quasar? What's a quasar, Dave? Well, that's a very good question, Stuart. And Nick found out the answer when he went to meet Steve Rawlings. Quasars, or quasi-stellar radio sources, were discovered in the 1950s using radio telescopes. In the decades that followed, astronomers discovered that quasars lie at vast distances from us and produce huge amounts of energy. What are these mysterious things called quasars? We think, or most astronomers think, that quasars are black holes which are accreting or, or gobbling up some material principally probably dust and gas and things like that, but maybe the odd star or two. Steve Rawlings, Professor of Astronomy at Oxford University. So when they do this, they, uh, um, although as, as is well known, uh, black holes have a great difficulty actually radiating, which is why they're called black holes. Yes. Um, while they're doing that, the, the stuff that's being gobbling, gobbled up tends to get heated up and, and gives rise to all sorts of um, crazy emission. That How does it get heated up? Again, this is a subject that people spend whole careers studying, but <laughs> crudely there's, there's some sort of thing called an, an accretion disk, which is basically just a, a flat, uh, rotating um, reservoir of material that's actually being gobbled up by a black hole. And it's essentially the interactions between clumps of material in that rotating disk that actually causes the... The, the, the heating up and the, uh, eventually the light to come from the, so from the disc. We're essentially detecting these black holes through the emission, the light coming from this accretion disc well, around Well, in fact, what I'm talking about today goes one, one step further. So um, there's this thing that we call reprocessing. So the light in the disc, uh, light is generated in the disc, and light can be generated right down to quite close to the black hole. Um, but that light has a tough time getting out. Um, and it often interacts with other things on the way, and we call this reprocessing. So, it's, so the, what I'm talking about today is really finding quasars by a method which looks at dust heated by the light from the disk, but at a much larger radius than the disk itself. Okay, how, one step back, how does the light interact with the stuff in the accretion disk? What are the actual physical processes which the light goes through on its way out? Um, well, uh, the, the, the light has to be emitted in, in some form. So this is either... Well, the astronomers basically um, put things down into, into two categories. One's called continuum radiation and one's called line radiation. So um, line radiation is radiation that's emitted at very specific frequencies or wavelengths. Um, and that tends to come from uh, actually processes within atoms or molecules and... and uh, you know, when you when you when you learn physics, particularly at university, you learn about quantum mechanics and energy levels and all these all these fancy things. Basically, uh, one of the one of the natural things that comes out of that is you, you tend to get these very sharp features, which are called line uh, line radiation. Um, and then there are um, then there are sources of radiation which go over much larger wavelengths and frequencies, and the, the, we call this continuum radiation. And that can be radiated by lots and lots of complicated physical processes, but often they're as simple as charged particles interacting with each other and typically the lighter particle being accelerated away by the interaction and that that is the cause of the radiation. So they're all quasars, when we look at the, the light coming from these quasars, they look like this, they have a, a sort of a, a broad continuum emission end 
a series of spikes. Is that the idea? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's basically how quasars were discovered as well. Now, um, what we found over recent years is that there are whole classes of quasars which uh, apparently have big gaps in that, in that broad spectrum, right? mm. i.e. if you look optically, you can't see them at all. Right. And that's thought to be due to um, something, something as simple as dust obscuration. So um, as, as sort of one of the first things you learn in astronomy is we find it very hard optically to see the centre of our own galaxy because there's mm. lots, of, lots of dust in the way and dust absorbs light. And the same seems to be true of most quasars, and that's in fact what I'm talking about today. So although intrinsically, if you could see all the light coming out from the quasar, you would find it would be roughly equally spread across the whole electromagnetic spectrum. Right. This reprocessing, in this case by dust just blocks out the optical, and so these things are essentially invisible in the optical. So, so, so the way we found things that we can't see is we used initially a combination of radio observations, which mm-hmm. radio waves uh, don't get absorbed by dust, um, and that's one of the great things about radio astronomy. And we've used that in combination with a far-infrared measurement, and far-infrared radiation is actually the emission from dust. Right. Rather than, and in fact, that's where the energy that's absorbed optically actually reappears in the infrared. So the, the, um, the, the, the far infrared observations show you where the dust is? We've combined the, these two methods which basically either are immune to dust in the case of radio or actually tell you about dust in the way of infrared. Um, and that's been made possible by a satellite called Spitzer in the infrared and the big new radio surveys, which of course um, Jodrell Bank is playing a very active part in. Where is this dust? In, in the picture that we're, we've got, we've got a bright emitting disk of yeah, some sort yeah, around yeah. a black hole. We call that a quasar, but where's the dust? Well, the dust is actually at much larger radii. So um, typically the, the sort of light from the, the central region is coming from light years, light months, that sort of scale from, from the centre. Now, out at thousands of light years from the centre, um, we believe there's regions where stars are forming and... This is called a you know, fancy word, but it's called a circumnuclear star formation region, which is you know a thousand times further out than the actual disk itself. Right. Um, but those that, that those sort of regions where stars form are, are always rich in dust, and that's one place in which we we're pretty certain we're seeing dust from. But in fact, the evidence we see tends to suggest the dust is coming from a whole range of distances from the center. Some fairly cool dust out at these very large radii but also dust that's so close to the nucleus that it's only just avoiding being melted. Right. Okay. Now, you can't see dust very, very close in because the radiation field of the accretion disk is so strong that the dust grains are heated to a high enough temperature that they just melt and disappear. Right, it ceases to be dust. Yes. Yeah. 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 So how do you know, though, how far away the dust is in this picture that we've drawn? From your observations? Well, um, it's, as often in astronomy, it's a combination of detailed modelling. So, in fact, it doesn't have to be that detailed. If you make a a fairly simple model and you put a radiation field and dust, it's something you could do as an undergraduate project, actually, Mm -hmm. and you put some dust at some distance from a quasar, it is fairly simple physics to work out what the spectrum, as we call it, what, what the energy output as a function of wavelength or frequency looks like for a given radius. And, and very broadly speaking, the further out you are, the cooler the dust, the closer you are, the hotter the dust. So that's, that's a method that's used very, very commonly. Um, there are other more direct methods trying to look to see if the dust, um, if, if, the, if, if the emission from the dust varies in time. Um, and typically it doesn't, which is another indication that it's coming from large scales. Mm. Um, things that come from very small scales can change very quickly. And, and, and so, so, so there, are, there are a bunch of methods, and like often in, as often in astronomy, when the first method is tried, you're not sure you believe it, but when you try six different methods and they all give you the same <laughs> answer, you start, to, you start to believe it. It's a conspiracy. It, or it could be a, it, it could always be a conspiracy, <laughs> How far away are these quasars from us? Um, okay, well, they're a long way. So they're, they're sort of redshifts of... So, so the objects I'm talking about today are typically at a redshift of two. Right. And the, way, the best way to think about that is to think that those quasars were around when the universe was uh, a small fraction of its current age. So we currently believe the universe is 
13.6 gig years, 13.6 billion years old. Right. And these quasars were around when the universe was um, a few gig years old. Right. And so um, talking about how far away they, they are, you take those times and multiply by the speed of light and you get a very large number. Yes. <laughs> but I, I mean, I'd, I tend to prefer to think about rather than how far away things are, which is important, um, at, what, at what point in the universe what time in the universe did they emit the light that we received. So these are so-called cosmological things. Oh, they the, are yeah. an awfully long way away. Yeah, they're, they're a very, very long way away. So we're talking about um, uh, you know, billions of, of light years. So that's, uh, what do we learn from the observations of dust, from quasar measurements? What do we learn about the dust between us and the quasar? Well, we, we, we learn a whole load of different things. Um, I mean, so we found these objects using Spitzer survey data. Mm-hmm. Uh, we actually were successful in getting spits of time to follow these objects up where we used a spectrometer that split the light, the, the infrared light, up into, into features. And uh, in those spectra, we've seen um, all sorts of features due to particular types of dust. So there's a feature that's only caused by dust that's made up of, of silicates. Right. So it has silicon in it. So we, we learned that, um, you know, the, the silicate out at Redshift 2 uh, we weren't the first people to show that, but in <laughs> fact, Spitzer, Spitzer is the first telescope that's had the sensitivity to show that in general. Right. Um, and we've also found these things called uh, PAH features, which are polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, which is a well done a, a <laughs> long a long way round of saying um, fairly complicated combinations of carbon and hydrogen atoms um, that many people think are. Uh, related to the building blocks of life. Well, that in itself is, very, is fascinating, isn't it? The fact that we are able to find these... Yes. Is, are they precursors to life? Are they necessary to produce well, life as we know it? Jim, the, the, there's, the, the, there's, a, there's a very big debate about that, and I'm not an expert in this field, but, I mean, uh, certainly, you know, if you go and, if you go and look on the web uh, as to current, uh, the current debate about this, a lot of people who work on this and who are experts on this say, yes, these are essential these are essential part of the process that builds up, up life, but that's a very big question. We'll leave that alone. How complicated are these PAHs? Oh, they're, they're, they're very complicated. So, um, I mean, in fact, I was, I was boning up on this on the way up on the train because I'm not <laughs> an expert on this. But, um, you know, when I was at school, we, we, uh, I did chemistry, and you have these, these things like benzene, uh, these uh, complicated things that basically are a ring of, let's say, six carbon atoms, right. each attached to one hydrogen atom. Mm. Um, and, and benzene is something that I remember playing around with at school. But basically, these PAHs are molecules like that stuck together, so they're many rings. And in fact, um, some of the ones that have been discovered in our own galaxy, I believe, have uh, you know hundreds, thousands of atoms in them. So they can get very complicated. Mm. And that's why people get excited, because obviously there are um, molecules in, in human beings that that are very large and complicated. There's a, long, a large number of steps going from saying we found this to, to saying this is how you generate life. But it is, it is an interesting thing. Right. Thank you very much indeed for taking the time to talk to us today. Okay, thank you very much. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks, Nick. And Nick isn't quite finished because here he is with Tim O'Brien with your favourite Ask an Astronomer. Welcome to Ask an Astronomer, where you get your astronomy questions answered by Dr. Tim O'Brien. Thanks again, Tim, for answering questions this month. Question here from Jeremy Taylor. He says, I was listening to the Jodcast last night, and this new map of the structure of dark matter and how it was derived was discussed. Now, the authors used gravitational lensing to determine the shape of dark matter by how the images of background galaxies are deformed. This puzzled me. How can they determine the shape of the dark matter this way? Surely you would need to know precisely where the background galaxies are in the first place and how they would appear if the dark matter wasn't there in order to measure how much their light has been deflected. Okay, right. I think I, I think I understand the problem. Well, that's to some extent. <laughs> um, so I'll do my best to explain it. Um, first of all, we should probably just reiterate what dark matter is. Yes. Um, it's basically... Um, we think it makes up about 85% of the mass of the of the matter in the universe. So it's actually the dominant component of matter in the universe. Um, we don't know what it is yet. Uh, we know it's there because of its gravitational effects mm-hmm. on other stuff, basically. 
Um, so it's quite important to try and, uh, and map out where it is. Of course, it's invisible. This is the thing. This is why it's called dark matter. Uh, the problem is you can't you can't see it. Doesn't generate any light of any form. Electromagnetic radiation, radio waves, visible light, infrared, whatever. It's effectively invisible. Um, so you can only tell if it's there because of its gravitational effect. That's the that's the important thing. So how the heck do you make a map of something that's invisible? Yes. Okay. This is this is the struggle. So what was done? Um, the discussion was about a paper by uh, a, a large group of astronomers um, from all over the world, basically. Um, the first author of which was was a guy called Richard Massey, who at the moment is a, is, a, is at Caltech. Um, and what they'd done was they'd used the Hubble Space Telescope uh, in a project called COSMOS, the Cosmic Evolution Survey, um, which is actually the, the biggest project that the HST has been involved in. There were 575... Um, Different pointing positions for the for the for the telescope, covering a, a region of about 1.6 square degrees, um, and they actually looked at in in total they looked at half a million galaxies. It was half a million galaxies and 1.6 square degrees. Absolutely, that's wow. an interesting thing in itself, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the sky's just full of these dashed things. <laughs> <laughs> How does that help them map the? dark matter because of course these the, way, the reason you see the galaxies of the Hubble Space Telescope you're not looking at dark matter itself you're looking at visible matter, you're looking mm. at the stars light from the stars basically in those galaxies people may have seen these very nice images of galaxy clusters where you get um, the images of background galaxies dis distant galaxies are distorted by the light um, the, the light that's coming from them being bent around um, dark matter that's between us and the distant galaxies. So light is bent around them, as Einstein predicted in, in general relativity, um, and that causes the image to appear very distorted. So you get these sort of big arcs and things, mm. and whether you've seen those cluster images, yes, I'm sure you have. Yes. Um, so um, we're not talking about that. We're not talking about strong lensing. We're talking about so-called weak lensing. You get strong lensing when the line of sight, as you look towards one of these distant galaxies, passes close to a very uh, large concentration of dark matter. But that would be relatively unusual. Mm. So the more typical case is where your line of sight goes through less dark matter. So you get a weaker effect. Right. You get these big distortions. So it, partly that explains one of Jeremy's problems is where at one point he says, you know, how do we know um, where these galaxies actually are since all we see is the distorted uh, images and he's sort of imagining that the positions are all changed mm -hmm. and that's not actually true in the in the weak lensing case you know it's it's not a strong lensing thing where you get these big arcs and everything's right. all over the place like looking through your bathroom window at the at the back garden sort right. of thing where you get all these multiple images and so, so on. the background galaxy is pretty much in the same place as it was if there was no lensing effect it's just ever so slightly distorted it's changed in its appearance and in fact if you, you know a typical galaxy if you were to if you take these half a million galaxies and what you can do in a, in a computerised sort of objective way is to measure the, the apparent shapes of the galaxies. So basically mm. you would fit, for example, ellipses. Right. So these things would look elliptical and you would be able to fit ellipses to the, to, to the shapes of these galaxies. And what would happen is the weak, what the weak lensing does is it changes the properties of that ellipse in some way. So, for example, it might make it look slightly more elliptical or slightly change the position angle of it in some way so it's sort of rotated slightly or something. Right. Now, of course it's true, one aspect of what he says is absolutely true, that we don't know what the original ellipticity and orientation of these galaxies is, since we only see the effects after the dark matter has had its, you know, played its cards and, and, and distorted the image. So, um, what, what would be the case if we don't know, if we don't know what the, what the orientation is, what we, what we take to be the case is that they're, un, they're uncorrelated, in other words, they're randomly oriented on, in, in space. Um, so um, that would be that would be what we would assume about their orientations. What you do when you go and make these measurements, these very detailed measurements, taking into account lots of complicated stuff actually about the about the noise in the images and about the way in which the telescope actually breathes, it actually changes shape slightly by a few microns um, as it sort of goes into and out of the Earth's shadow, for example. So you have to correct for all these things. So it's quite a complicated thing to do. What you do is you look at the actual observed ellipticities and orientations and you find, in fact, that they're correlated. So adjacent galaxies, which light from which has passed through a similar um, region, of, well, it's passed through the same region of dark matter, basically, would have their, their, their images distorted in the same way. Right. Um, and it's sort of about the 2 or 3% level. It's about the same level as the change in distortion you'd expect, as, as the change in orientation you'd expect to see from them being oriented randomly 
Um, so you can't just do it with one galaxy. No, you need a you need a group of them. You need a massive group, and that's mm. why they've looked at half a million galaxies. You have to. It's a statistical uh, argument, basically, where you look at it and you say, is there any correlation between the sort of apparent elliptices and orientations of these galaxies of adjacent galaxies in groups? And then from that, from seeing that signal, which otherwise wouldn't be there, from seeing that that correlation, you can then reconstruct um, what dark matter must be there to have caused that amount of correlation. Does right. that make any sense? Well, yes. <laughs> so I think I think I think I think that's the answer to the question. Thank you very much. That was, of course, everyone's favourite Ask an Astronomer. And actually, you don't have to be content just with hearing it on the Jodcast, because during the month of April, we have something very special. We've got Ask an Astronomer at Jodrell Bank Observatory in our visitor centre. So on the dates of Monday the second to fifth and Tuesday the tenth to Friday the thirteenth of April. If you come to the Jodlebank Visitor Centre at 2pm, there will be an Ask an Astronomer segment, which will be completely and utterly free. You may even get a chance to, to ask questions to Nick or to Tim, um, or to any of the other host of astronomers that will be presenting the Ask an Astronomer sessions. And as Stuart says, that's absolutely free, like all of the podcasts that you can download from the internet. The Jodcast is just one of them. And, Stuart, once again, you've been listening to a lot of those podcasts that you can download. I have, so I'll go through some of the things that caught my eye this month. Um, the first, I'll say, is Planetary Radio. I'm always a fan of Planetary Radio. I think it's a really good um, podcast. It's made by the Planetary Society based in Pasadena in California. The main one that caught my eye was the International Lunar Decade. Everyone and their, their cat seems to be going to the moon in the next 10 years. You've got, obviously, the United States, Europe wants to go to the moon, Japan, India, China. They've got the chief of the Planetary Society on to talk about his proposal for an international lunar decade. So he's proposed a focus for the entire world. It's a bit artificial as a construct, but it helps get everyone focused on the idea of what you can do on the moon and why go back there. So that was interesting. There's another interesting planetary radio at the end of March... And that was about Mars Express and the radar instrument on Mars Express, which has confirmed lots and lots and lots of water ice at the poles of Mars. In fact, there's enough water ice there to give you a sea about 10 metres deep, I think, all around the the whole of Mars, which is pretty impressive. That's if we had uh, Martian global warming. Yes. Mm. Mars seems to have been a topic of the podcast this month. Australian ABC Radio National's Science Show has a podcast which can, amongst other things, contains an interview with William Boynton, who's one of the investigators on Mars Odyssey, which has done some gamma-ray spectrometer observations of Mars as well. Okay, enough of Mars. Um, The last one I'll mention is Astronomy Cast, which had a recent episode about near-Earth asteroids, and they tell you all about the many, many different types of near-Earth asteroid. Um, They talk about asteroid impact movies and complain about Armageddon and Deep Impact, as everybody should. And because of the awful physics. Bad, bad physics. Bad astronomy, definitely. And they they talk about ways that you could deflect near-Earth asteroids, while you certainly wouldn't want to blow them up with a nuclear bomb. Or Bruce Willis. <laughs> well, you might want to blow them up with Bruce Willis, but or maybe that's just me. Well, I don't know. <laughs> anyway, Dave, that's the end of my astronomy podcast roundup. That's great. Thanks, Stuart. And from Armageddon to the third sign of the apocalypse, here's the night sky with Ian Morrison. So let's have a look at the sky that we can actually observe during the month of April. As the sun sets, the constellation of Orion is low in the southwest, still looking very grand. Up to its right is Taurus the Bull, a little group of stars called the Pleiades. Up and to the left of Orion are the heavenly twins, Gemini. And across and to the left, towards the south, you'll see the constellation of Leo the Lion. I like to think of Leo in the form of the lions in Trafalgar Square on their haunches, which I think is called a lion couchant. But in fact, most of the images of lions you see on the star charts show him with his legs out and I think that's technically called a lion rampant. In between Gemini and Leo you will actually see an intruder right on the boundary of the constellations of Leo and Cancer which lies in between 
in fact, is the planet Saturn, to which we'll return. It's worth looking to the right of where Saturn is in the sky. Cancer is a very faint constellation, but there's a very nice cluster, the Beehive Cluster, or Prysope, and it's a very nice binocular object, particularly, of course, when there's no moon and the fainter stars are more visible. Low to the left of Leo and rising in the east as the evening progresses is in fact the constellation of Virgo. Its brightest star is Spica. Between Leo, or the tail of Leo, shall we say, and Spica, lies what is called the realm of the galaxies. A telescope will show hundreds of galaxies in this region. We're looking towards, in that direction, the centre of our local supercluster. It's called the Virgo supercluster. And our group of galaxies, about 50 in number, with the Milky Way and Andromeda being the largest, is an outlying member of this supercluster. In fact, there are some very nice galaxies to see just below Leo. And if you look on the night sky page for this month, just put night sky into Google or go onto the Jodrell Bank website, you'll actually see where some of those galaxies are. There are at least half a dozen that can be picked out with a relatively small telescope. Above Leo is in fact the constellation of Ursa Major. It's two brighter stars on the right-hand side of what we call the plough, pointing up towards the pole star. So what about the planets this month? Well, things have got a bit better than they were a few months ago. Saturn is, of course the star of the evening sky in the south, and Venus, in fact, dominates the western sky after the sun sets. It's there for a couple of hours or so and reaches an elevation of about 30 degrees, so you just can't fail to see it. it has a magnitude of about minus 4. What's quite interesting, I find, about Venus is that as it moves in its orbit around the sun, its phase changes, as first seen, in fact, by Galileo. And as it gets nearer to us, less of it becomes illuminated. It shows a very thin phase. When it's on the far side of the sun, the phase is much fuller. The effect of the change in distance and the change in phase basically keeps the brightness of Venus almost constant at about minus four for several months. So it shines really well, and you just cannot fail to see it in the western sky if the sky is clear. Saturn, of course, is the other nice planet this month. As I said, it's between Leo and Cancer, just on the boundary between the two. It's about a magnitude one. It's getting a bit fainter, in fact, as time goes by, because the rings are closing, so there's not so much to reflect the sunlight now as there used to be. It's a lovely object to observe with a small telescope. Even a telescope of about four inches diameter will show you its, its satellite Titan. And an eight-inch telescope might show you several more. So those are the best two to see this month. Jupiter is now becoming visible earlier in the night. Basically, it will rise by about 11 p.m. by the end of April. It's at magnitude minus 2.3, so it's quite bright. But sadly, at the moment, it's almost at the lowest part of the ecliptic. It never rises very high in the sky, and so our views are going to be somewhat hindered by the atmosphere. It's actually up to the left of the red giant star Antares in Scorpius. A small telescope will easily show the four Galilean moons that weave their way around it. But to see Jupiter well, I think you should buy a ticket and go to Hawaii or somewhere in the southern hemisphere where it'll be much higher in the sky. Mercury and Mars are theoretically visible, but they're very low on the horizon. Uh, Mars is just visible before dawn, close to the southeastern horizon. The disk is just five seconds across. It shines at magnitude one, but to be honest, it's not really worth looking for at the moment. Just wait a few months before it becomes higher in the sky. And Mercury, after a good showing recently, likewise is very low in the glare of the sun, so probably not worth trying to observe. So are there any highlights this month? Well, we, we have a few. Um, Venus on April the 11th 
will lie within two degrees of that lovely little star cluster, the Pleiades. That would make a very nice photograph, the group of the, the seven sisters and their mum and dad uh, with Venus close by. And on the 18th, it's actually moved over in Taurus as about one degree above the Hyades cluster. That's a V-shape, and it forms the head of Taurus the bull. The eye is Aldebaran, but in fact, that's got nothing to do with the cluster. It's a, a foreground star, and it appears bright because it's about half the distance. It's a lovely red giant star looking a, a lovely red color, ideal for an eye. So that's two nice views of the sky with Venus in, in, in the picture. On the 22nd of the month, we have a chance to observe the Lyrid meteor shower, so-called because the radiant, that's the point where the meteors appear to come from, lies in the constellation of Lyra, which is rising in the northeast in the hours, the morning hours of that night. About one o'clock in the morning is probably about the best time to try. They're typically around... 20 to 30 meteors per hour, which isn't a vast number, but occasionally there's a bit of an outburst. I think a few years ago, 90 meteors were actually observed coming from the radiant around uh, that sort of time. So it's always worth having a look, just in case it happens again. So that's the Lyrid meteor shower, somewhere around midnight and afterwards on April the 22nd. One thing that it might just be worth looking for, and we haven't got much more of a chance until the autumn, is a minima of the star called Algol, the demon star. It's actually Beta Persei, and there are two components, A and B, one of which comes in front of the other, and it causes the magnitude to drop from 2.1 down to 3.4 for a few hours, and that happens every two days, 20 hours and 49 minutes. We will have two minima in the evening hours coming up in April. On the 9th of April, there should be a minima around 11 o'clock, 23.34 universal time. And on the 12th, somewhat earlier, 20.24 universal time. The thing to do is just to get a feel of the brightness of Algol compared to nearby stars you can easily then see when it's dropped to its minima. How to find it? Well, basically, start where Venus is, that's very obvious, and move over towards the W-shaped constellation of Cassiopeia. And Algol lies on the line between perhaps about 40% of the way from Venus and the Pleiades towards Cassiopeia. Anyway, the nights sadly are getting a bit shorter, but there are still lots of very nice things to observe in the sky. I do hope you try to do so. Thanks, Ian. And more from him, of course, next month. And that brings us to the end of the Jodcast for this month, I'm afraid. Uh, we'll be back halfway through April and then again for the main Jodcast at the beginning of May. Do please check out our website at www.jodcast.net and, of course, fill out our survey if you haven't already. Yes, please fill out the survey. Yes, please. You, you hear them? You hear our presenters. Please. We're begging. Donate. We're on our knees. <clears throat> yes, yeah, so please fill out the survey and please visit our website. So now it just remains for me to thank Stuart and Nick. Thanks, guys. Oh, thank you, Dave. You're very welcome. Ian and Tim, Graham Wern and Steve Rawlings, and, of course, to the Particle Physics and Astronomy Research Council and the Institute of Physics for generously supporting the Jodcast. Yes, thank you very much to them. So, yes, that's it for this month, and we'll see you again next month. Thanks very much for downloading us. We'll see you soon. Bye. See you later. History being made as we speak. In other news, the Italian spaghetti harvest is once again poor this year due to another excessively wet winter. More on that story later. And now the horoscopes. A glitch in the crab pulsar will be affecting Taurians this month, who will find it difficult to be regular. Librans will feel heavy as Jupiter continues to weigh them down, 
and there's comfort for a fucans as Pluto is still in their sign, and no one cares about that either. JBC Radio 4 News.